0: Today on Something You Should Know, if you carry a balance on your credit cards, do you save money by making your minimum payment early in the month? We'll do the math. Also, can you start a business, be a success quickly, and do it for $100? A lot of people do.
1: That's why the $100 startup model is all about encouraging people to start quickly. You know, it's encouraging them to start with the the money you have, start with the skills that you have, and, you know, here's here's a plan to get started within 30 days.
0: Then there's an easy way to save a lot of battery power on your smartphone by eliminating just one app. Which one is it? And if you're working too much, you have to stop.
2: After about 40 hours of work per week, workers will begin to make errors. There's palpable erosion in the quality of the work that they put out there. And then after 50 hours, it's a precipitous drop. It's like a cliff.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. If you have to hire someone, what's the best way? Referrals? Well, maybe that could work. But just because somebody knows somebody who knows you... Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And
1: practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers.
0: One of the best things about doing this podcast, the emails. The emails I get are amazing. I think it has to do with the fact that podcasting is such an intimate medium. I mean, it's really, it's just you and me and we talk, and so people feel free to write to me, and uh, I just love it. And I recently got an email just the other day from uh, Sarah, who is a physician's assistant, who was talking about the last episode with Dr. Andrew Weil about prescribing antibiotics when they're not really needed. And but the I won't go into all the details, but the email was so heartfelt and so well written, and. I love getting emails, and if you have a question or a comment or a suggestion, believe me, I read every single email, I respond to every single one, and you can always get me at mike at somethingyoushouldknow.net. First up today, credit cards. If you carry a balance on your credit cards, I bet you've wondered from time to time, if you pay the payment early, will you actually save money? In other words, if you pay the payment before the due date, does that help you in any way? And the answer is yes. It's not a big yes, but it's a yes. But it can add up. And here's an example from bankrate.com. Let's imagine that you're a cardholder with an 18% annual percentage rate and a $10,000 balance on your credit card and let's say your minimum monthly payment is 3.5% of the balance, or $350. So, if the cardholder, you, pays on the last day of the billing cycle, in other words, when the payment is due, the finance charge for the period will total $152, on an average daily balance of $9,989. However... this will all make sense in a second. However, if the same cardholder, you, pays on day two instead of the last day that the bill is due, if you pay on day two long before the bill even shows up in the mail, the average daily balance falls to $9,661. So you're paying on a smaller balance. And what will that save you in finance charges? Well, in this case about $60 a year. So, yeah, it's not a lot, but it can add up. You see, credit card holders who carry a balance from month to month don't get a grace period, like the people who pay their balance off every month. The credit card company charges interest every day of the month until the bill is paid. In addition, the interest compounds... For example, on the second day of the billing cycle, a cardholder pays interest not only on the outstanding balance, but also on the interest charged the day before. So every early payment you make saves a little money. And that is something you should know. More and more people are starting their own business. First of all, it's a lot easier than it used to be to start a business, and it's a lot less expensive. And in some ways, it's actually less risky than working in a salary job, which, you know, could be gone tomorrow. But aside from the practical reasons of starting a business, there's also that romantic notion of being that entrepreneur, (laughs) where you're your own boss, you set your own hours, you do what you like, and you make a good living. So should you start a business? Well, I want you to meet Chris Gillibo. Chris is one of those people who has never actually had a traditional job working for someone else. And a few years ago, Chris identified 1,500 individuals who have built businesses that earn $50,000 a year or more from a very modest investment, in many cases $100 or less. The results of his research into these people is his best-selling book called The $100 Startup. Welcome, Chris. Let's start with this idea that great entrepreneurs are great because they have followed their passion. In an earlier episode of this podcast, I discussed the, the pitfalls of following the follow-your-passion advice. So what do you think? Do you think that to be a successful entrepreneur, must you follow your passion?
1: Well, you know, uh, follow your passion is probably one of the most overrated phrases, uh, you know, online or offline these days. But I do think a lot of successful entrepreneurs do follow their passion. I think what they do, though, is they don't just follow any particular passion. They follow a passion that is also useful uh, or interesting.
0: I think I agree with you that that word or that phrase is overused because, you know, I doubt the, the successful brake shop owner lies in bed at night passionate about, you know, brake linings. I, I, you know, I don't think he has a passion for that, but but he, but he's right. a successful businessman.
1: Yes, uh, no, that's totally fair. I mean, I guess I would say maybe that successful brake shop owner, hopefully, perhaps he's not passionate about brakes per se, but maybe he is passionate about community, about the value that's You know, he provides his customers, his clients, maybe in the employees, you know, that he works with. So hopefully there's there's at least some love there. I guess I'm, I'm mostly interested in working with people who, for the most part, enjoy what they do.
0: One of the things that certainly stops people, and I've heard statistics about how, you know, there's a lot more people who think they'd like to start a business than ever do, that what stops them is they think it's too risky, or they don't have the money, or what if I fail, or, you know, all the things that I'm sure you've heard, uh, sure. to which you reply what?
1: Um, you know, it depends on the question. I guess if, if someone feels like it's too risky, then, the, then I would say, well, what really is risky? You know, these days you can start a business without spending a lot of money, without a lot of, you know, lead time or prep time. So I'm not sure that's really risky, at least compared to competing in the traditional job market. As to not knowing what to do, that is a real problem. A lot of people are motivated to start a business, but they don't know what the next steps are. So at least my hope is with the $100 startup to provide a very specific resource that has lots of you know, next steps and checklists and examples um, to help those people.
0: Do you think that if you ask someone who says, you know, yes, I'd love to start a business, I'd love to be my own boss, that if they don't really have a pretty good idea of what they want to do, other than just start a business, but they don't have an idea of what kind of business, that they're probably not a good candidate to be an entrepreneur?
1: That's a good question. Uh, I don't know that everyone necessarily wants to be an entrepreneur or be their own boss. I guess a lot of the people that we talked with for sort the of study, uh, their primary motivation was freedom, and they wanted to do more of what they loved, whether that was you know, through full-time business or just through a side project and most of them did not really have a strategic plan in the beginning. Most of them didn't necessarily know how everything was going to unfold, but they did kind of, you know, put something forward and then adopt and tweak as they went along. So, I'm not sure that everyone wants to be a full-time entrepreneur, but I do think most people want more freedom.
0: And and that's that's very appealing, And I but I think when people start talking about that, they get wrapped up in this idea of having your own business means huge riches And perhaps, you know, after a while you don't have to do anything that the business runs itself or other people run it, that this is the path to riches, wealth, and fame.
1: Right. And maybe for some people it is. I guess uh, for most of the people that we talked with in the study, you know, there were 1,500 people. Uh, Most of them weren't necessarily trying to opt out of the world of work entirely. Most of them wanted to do something that was meaningful. So actually most of them, you know, enjoyed what they did, and maybe they worked you know, less hours than they did in a previous job. But their whole goal wasn't necessarily to escape work. It was to do something that they found meaningful and that helped people.
0: So you looked at these 1,500 people. So what, what are the takeaways from that? What, what is it these people have in common? What is it you learned?
1: I think that one of the characteristics that people shared, and we, we talked to people from all over the world operating different kinds of businesses, people from all ages and backgrounds. I would say one of the characteristics was curiosity. And almost everyone that we talked to was somewhat curious, and they asked a lot of questions, um, and that's how they kind of stumbled into their business model was often by asking questions and seeking to you know, profit where other people had kind of overlooked something. Uh, another characteristic maybe was um, just the willingness to take action and the willingness to get started rather than remaining in paralysis. Uh, as you mentioned, a lot of people have business ideas, um, just like a lot of people want to write a book or a lot of people want to travel, but it's only a minority of those people that kind of follow through. Uh, so even just the following through and the getting started and seeing, you know, what could possibly come out of it, I, I would say that was probably an important uh, characteristic.
0: And are you finding now, or, or in your research anyway, that, that people are more inclined to start online-type businesses as opposed to, you know, the break shop, the dry cleaner?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I would say that there's all kinds of models, and we've talked to plenty of people who had started retail businesses and, and offline businesses, but... Um, I do think it is somewhat easier to, uh, to start an online business or even if it's an offline business using online media to attract customers and clients. And I do feel like the cost is much lower, um, the access to an existing marketplace is there. And also these days, more and more people are becoming comfortable with online shopping. And it used to be kind of a niche thing, but now almost all of us you know, are, are, are comfortable you know, going online and purchasing something.
0: And when the conversation turns to online businesses, then people start talking about those those online businesses that get hyped a lot on the internet about, you know, make money while you sleep, uh, you don't really have right, to right. do anything. Um, you know, right. here it's a prepackaged business in a box, you push the button, pay me a hundred dollars and off you go.
1: Right, yes, and that's not at all what we're talking about, uh, with the hundred dollar startup model. We're talking about actually, you know, creating a real business, something that really does uh, you know, deliver value to the world. And and people did that, as I said, in different ways, um, but it was not like a package deal. I mean, they, they usually started with something that they were skilled in, and they found a way to offer that skill or that knowledge, that expertise, you know, to a, a group of people who are willing to pay for it. So it is just like a, you know, walking into the break shop, uh, except, you know, it's doing it online.
0: What What's the advice... Let's take a photographer, for example, somebody who's been, as a hobby, taking lots of pictures and people say they're really good and he's thinking he wants to start Mm -hmm. a photography business because he likes taking pictures, not necessarily because he likes getting customers. So, you know, he's good at what he does, but if you don't have any customers, you don't have a business.
1: Correct, yes. And I don't think he necessarily has to learn all about the administrative aspects of running a business, but... I guess part of running a business is, you know, enjoying the interaction with customers, with people. So there was a story in the book uh, about a guy who was a photographer, and he had his prints online for a long time, but he never actually had a means of getting paid for them. He didn't actually have, like, a PayPal button. And so one day he just kind of decided as an experiment to put that up. And he talked about, you know, he put that button up, and then a couple days later, someone came and bought his first $50 print. And he just talked about how empowering that was. And he said it wasn't just the fifty dollars; it was the fact that I had made this sale. You know, someone came to my came to my website and gave me money for something I had made, and that kind of encouraged him to go on. So I would say the sooner that this you know photographer in your example um, you know adds a method of payment and puts something out there, then uh, you know the sooner they'll become more comfortable with you know interacting with customers, and it's really a great thing. It's an encouraging thing.
0: That is pretty empowering when when you actually get. You're, you may not be making a lot of money, but when you get some money, all of a sudden, you kind of, you know, colors get brighter and, and, and the sky is bluer.
1: Right. That's totally true. I and mean, then you realize what's possible. You know, we, we talked um, with Sarah Young, who owns this yarn store in Portland, and Sarah talks about uh, the first time her store did $1, a $1,000 day, and she called her dad on the phone, and she was just so excited and so, you know, empowered. and. And so that's why the $100 Startup Model is all about encouraging people to start quickly. You know, it's encouraging them to start with the, the money you have. Don't spend a lot of money. Don't borrow money. Start with the skills that you have. And, you know, here's a, here's a plan to get started within 30 days. And then you can see what happens after that. Um, but don't wait.
0: I'm speaking with Chris Gillibo and he is author of the book, a big best-selling book from a couple years ago called The $100 Startup. something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. So Chris, the model that you're talking about, the model of starting a business is so different than the one that I think many people think of, kind of the business school model of starting a business where you have an idea, you write a big business plan, you go get venture capital, all that. This pretty much makes that Obsolete, at least for the solo entrepreneur.
1: Uh, No, I agree. And I think also when people think about startups, you know, sometimes people are thinking about raising capital and angel investors and all these kind of things. But everyone that we talked with uh, for the $100 startup, you know, none of them had done anything like that. Uh, They just kind of went and got started. They didn't write that 60 page business plan that you mentioned, they didn't put together, you know, investment proposals uh, because they didn't need to. You know, and in many cases, they actually didn't want that. In many cases, uh, as the business got more successful, they actually had offers for investment, and often they turned them down because they you know, deliberately chose to remain small.
0: How many of the people in, 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 that you studied ended up with a business that was different than the one they thought they were getting into in the beginning?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, I'm not sure in terms of a percentage. Uh, I would say that almost everyone kind of, adjusted as they went along and almost everyone was surprised at the response they had and were maybe sometimes, sometimes surprised that one product or one offering was you know, more successful than another and a lot of people made tweaks and adjustments. So I don't know how like, many had a completely different business, um, but I would say pretty much everyone was kind of you know, responsive to you know, how their initial customers and clients uh, engaged with things. So I think that's also kind of a characteristic of success, you know, the willingness to adapt.
0: And I also, and I've heard this some, I don't remember who told this story, but something called the the corridor effect, that when you start a business and you start walking down that corridor, doors on either side of you start to open up and things start to happen to you and your business that you would have never imagined. Did you find that?
1: Uh, we did, and we also found this principle that for almost everyone that we talked to, it was much easier to kind of ramp up the business, and once it, once the business was doing something, you know, once it had those $50 print sales, or even making a thousand or two thousand dollars a month, uh, it was it was pretty easy to go to making $5,000 a month, or maybe even $10,000. You know, uh, so it was much easier actually to ramp up an existing business, even if it was very small, uh, than it was to start the business in the first place. And so that usually happens because of that corridor effect, because. You know, they can see other opportunities for revenue. If they have a product, they realize maybe some people want to teach them. Maybe some people want to learn how to use that product. So they offer a service, or vice versa, uh, and that's also an exciting thing because then you have more opportunities and more, you know, room for growth.
0: Because there are so many of those people. I mean, I can think of some right off the top of my head who have business ideas and maybe, you know, put their toe in the water and mm-hmm. i always want but they never do anything and i always wonder if maybe the business is better as a fantasy than a reality and they're really afraid of you know what will happen if they fail and they can't have that dream that this will make a billion dollars one day because when it's <laughs> when it's exposed to the light of day it may suck yeah. and 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 then what are they going to dream about at night
1: Right. No, that's, that's uh, fascinating. I, I guess uh, my only response would be, you know, most people don't actually want a, m- a billion dollars, you know. Uh, most people wouldn't know what to do with a billion dollars. But, you know, I talked with lots of people who were making, you know, $100,000 or $200,000 a year from their project, and they were absolutely thrilled, you know, and even some people are making less than that. Uh, but if you have a side project, which a lot of people did, that makes, you know, $50,000 a year or more, you know, that's, that's fantastic, and that gives you great security, even if you don't leave your job. You know, it gives you great security to have this thing on the side um, that's, you know, available to you in case something does happen with your day job.
0: And and the people that you studied and talked to, I mean, what kinds of dollars are we talking about? Were these people that were just making $50,000, or, or, or were these people hoping and getting to half a million, five million kind of dollars a year?
1: Yeah, well, we had $50,000 a year as a baseline, and that's just because that's the average U.S. income. I didn't want to only look at hobbies. You know, I wanted to look at actual, you know, projects that were making money. Uh, most of them did, in fact, do more than that. Uh, we had lots of, you know, hundred thousand dollar, two hundred thousand dollar, multiple six figure businesses, and then a few million dollar businesses as well. Uh, but again, you know, I would say most of the people were motivated primarily by freedom. Uh, they weren't necessarily trying to build, you know, multi million dollar businesses. Um, they were just trying to make a good living. You know, doing something that they loved so that they could have more time with their families. You know, more time to do, you know, things
0: that they enjoyed. And the people who were making $50,000, 60000 a year from this, was that their sole source of income, or did they still work for somebody else, too?
1: Uh, it depends. You know, it depends on where they're located. You know, obviously, like, you know, if you're in California, then $50,000 a year is not a great income, but, you know, if you're in India, then it is. You know, there was actually one guy in India who made $200,000 a year, so he was, you know, two hundred K, and I was impressed with that, because that's a great income, you know, in most of the United States, and certainly it is in India, so... Uh, some of them were doing it on the side. Some of it were you know had just started, and it got to that fifty to one hundred thousand dollars level and we were planning to ramp up and and others, uh, you know maybe they were parents or caregivers or something. and you know fifty thousand dollars on the side was great.
0: And how many of these people that you talked to had previous experience of either starting a successful or or, or even an unsuccessful business before this one really took hold?
1: I would say very few. You know, out of 1,500, of course, we had some examples of serial entrepreneurs. Uh, there were a couple people who were just you know determined to go it alone no matter what, and uh, you know they would do anything they could to be an entrepreneur. But probably the vast majority were people uh, who just had regular jobs and then kind of stumbled into this. Uh, you know, they they, uh, they started a course and they thought no one would sign up, and then you know 100 people signed up, and then a thousand people signed up, uh, or they got laid off from a job and were unable to find another job just because of the difficult recession, and so they ended up creating their business out of that. So I would say the vast majority of them uh, didn't have any business background. Uh, they just, you know, they had some kind of skill, and then they found a way to to you know make that useful.
0: And any regrets? Any people who said, you know, this this isn't really what I thought it would be? Or, or I guess I guess those people wouldn't really sign up for your study.
1: Well, you know, we had, we heard from people who had made different transitions, and uh, there was a story of someone who had gone full-time into entrepreneurship, and then she realized she actually valued the collaborative aspect of uh, some of the design work she had done before. So she went back to the studio, but she went back part-time, uh, and she talked about how that was a good fit for her, because she still had the business on the side, but she had the part-time work, you know, at the studio, and she, she said, you know, I, I have the part-time job, but I feel like I'm, you know, full-time responsible for myself, because now I'm I'm just a contractor there, not an employee. So some people had made different decisions about that, but I don't think anyone really, like, regretted, you know, going down this path of, of pursuing freedom.
0: And lastly, talk to the, the idea that I, I think one thing that stops people is they think it either has to be a new idea, because, you know, there already are 16 photographers in town, the, the last thing we need is another one, or Or they think that, you know, maybe I'm just not as good as they are. Or, you know, there's kind of that that self-doubt that always kind of pecks at you in the beginning that maybe you're really doing something kind of foolish here.
1: Right. No, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, I would say the first thing is, you know, if there are other people doing something similar to what you envision, that's often a good sign. You know, there's not a ton of original ideas, you know, out there, especially if you're, a photographer or whatever the example is, you know, people are still doing that. It's actually a good sign that there is market demand. It's a good sign that there is something that people are willing to pay for. Um, you know, and at the same time, what you offer is probably going to be somewhat different. And you're going to have your own pitch, your own messaging. Um, you know, if it's a personality-based business like a lot of these were, uh, then you're going to have your own personality. It'll attract your own customers, or your own clients. Um, so I tend to focus much more on the zero-sum game of competition, and I don't necessarily think that... Um, at least for a lot of the businesses that we talked with, competition was not a huge deal for them. Uh, They were much more concerned with the competition against themselves and just kind of bettering themselves and bettering their own business.
0: What's so exciting about what you're saying is that anybody can start a business. I mean, it doesn't take it like it used to. You don't have to have an office in an office building and have all that infrastructure. You can have a business in your home And it can really make money. And it's so exciting that anybody really can do this. Chris Guillebeau has been my guest. The name of his book is The $100 Startup, and you can find a link to that book in the show notes. Thank you, Chris. Some of us work a lot. I mean a whole lot. More than 40 hours a week. Sometimes a lot more than 40 hours a week. And much of that work is done on the weekends. By now you've probably heard that working too much has negative consequences. It can have negative consequences on you and your health. It can have negative consequences on the work. Katrina Onstadt is an award-winning journalist who has taken a hard look at this all-work-no-play attitude that many people seem to have to see what's really going on and what the real consequences are. Welcome, Christina. And so, why do you think this is important? So, what if some people want to work all the time?
2: Well, I think, and I think we know, that many of us are very burnt out, and our weekends are not uh, as satisfying as we would like them to be, or maybe as we remember them in a nostalgic way from our childhoods. So, I wanted to set out to investigate what happened to the weekend. Why is it that So many of us suffer from what's actually called the Sunday night blues, that sensation that the weekend was not uh, rejuvenating in any way. So I wanted to look at our relationship between work and leisure and and figure out what went wrong and what we can do better.
0: So what went wrong? What happened to the weekend?
2: Yeah, well, a lot of things have conspired to uh, take our weekends away from us. Um, Probably the biggest piece is technology obviously it used to be that we would leave our workplaces on friday at five and that was it we were off we were truly disconnected um now many people carry their offices on their bodies and their phones and even if you're not constantly interacting with work although many people are we're working more on weekends than we used to be demographically but uh even if you're not actually doing the work you're kind of on high alert right there's a Sort of uh, like a low-level hum of the office that seems to follow follow people where they are, uh, even in their free time. So that's a really uh, different relationship to work, and that's something that's that's quite new. Um, the other thing that's happened, obviously, is um, that. The weekend was a victory of organized labor. And as we've seen the weakening of, of unions, of their influence and power in society, we've also seen the erosion of some of those worker protections, including monitoring lengths of a work week and protecting the weekend. And then I guess the final factor is secularization, right? That many people are not as, we're more atheistic, less religious than we used to be. And so we don't often have that kind of idea of sanctified time on the weekend, right? That's going to be time for church or synagogue, or whatever it is, in a secular society, there isn't that sort of inborn scaffolding of the weekend.
0: So I think people have a sense that, you know, we're working hard, we're working more, we're working on the weekends when we didn't used to, and all that, but but how do we know that's harmful? I mean, it, it sounds good like we should take more time off, but says who?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a, a lot of pretty solid research out there to suggest that overwork is not good for you. And as you say, we know this intuitively, but now we actually have measures. (laughs) People who uh, work more than 50 hours a week are more prone to substance abuse issues, including alcoholism, um, overwork leads to anxiety, mental health. So there is uh, like a public health component to this. There's also the bigger societal question of, what happens when we don't have time to be with one another? That old-fashioned kind of gathering. And the weekend used to really be the site of that. But if we're working through our weekends, there's a potential there for a weakening of social bonds, right? Um, we know that a sense of belonging is the real key to happiness. One's financial success, one's social status. That actually doesn't breed happiness in people. Um, but what does is feeling connected to others. So we don't have that time for those connections. Who are we? I think it is a really important question.
0: So what do you say, though, to the person who says, look, I I love my work. I like working on the weekends. I have plenty of time to, you know, go to the baseball games and hang out with the kids and all that. But, but uh, I don't want you telling me I, I shouldn't work weekends because I, I enjoy it.
2: Yeah, I mean, listen, I also love my work. And many people... Uh, in a certain class, and you know, especially white collar workers and the creative class and the knowledge economy, often really love our work, and we're very bound up with our work. Our work and our identity can often feel very inseparable. Uh, inseparable, right? Our self and our work self become one and the same. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I'm not, and I'm not trying to, you know, denigrate people who who love their work. I think the question is, how is it sitting with you in your life? If it's not a problem, great. But what we're hearing is that people who are unable to separate their work self and their private self at some point during the week are losing out um, on those human connections, on a sense of meaning and purpose. You know, it's a bit of a cliché, that idea – You know, no one on their deathbed says, I wish I'd worked more, (laughs) right? Usually they say, I wish I'd had more experiences, more love, more passion, more art, more beauty, whatever it is, whatever the thing is that you might not um, be able to engage with because work has become all-consuming, it is important and it is an issue. And, you know, there's a little bit of Stockholm Syndrome in our relationship to work, too, right? If people say, like, but I love this, I love this, Uh, it's it's enough for me, You know, workplaces are set up so that we will feel that in many cases, right, especially in this kind of post-Silicon Valley mode where a lot of us are in offices that are really fun. You know, we're on our bouncy balls, we're at our paintball, uh, uh, you know, staff parties. (laughs) Um, And that's fine, but just remember that all of those kinds of innovations – which do make work more pleasurable are also designed to keep us working and there's a loss that comes with that right and ask the people around you how they feel how, how they feel about your relationship to work and it might alter your own attitude.
0: What do we know about what happens to the quality of work when people don't take time off when they just keep working?
2: Yeah it's really interesting and what we know is working longer does not mean working better in fact. After about 40 hours of work per week, um, workers will begin to uh, make errors. There's palpable erosion in the quality of the work that they put out there. And you won't actually make a lot more widgets after about 40 hours. You might still be sitting in your chair or standing at the assembly line or whatever your work is, but what you're churning out is going to be compromised. And that happens a little bit after 40 hours. And then after 50 hours, it's a precipitous drop. It's like a cliff. Um, the productivity really drops off. Sometimes there can be crunch periods where people can work 50, 60, even 70 hours a week over two, maybe three weeks, and then they will be burnt out. And a lot of this data collected around this phenomenon comes from, uh, from the gaming community, and, uh, again, in Silicon Valley, because that is such a digital, uh, is such a crunch Uh, Culture where people will be working for long, concentrated periods of time. And there's a lot of burnout in that world, and a lot of mistakes that have to be corrected later are introduced. So this fantasy that working longer means working better, we really need to let that go.
0: And this is a fairly uniquely American thing, because when you go to Europe, you don't... When you go to lots of places, you don't see this you know, the more I work, the better I am kind of thing.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is, uh, you know, in in North America, we are the new world. And there's a sort of uh, inborn hustle, right? Like, and this Protestant work ethic is very deeply ingrained. And again, there's nothing wrong with that, as long as you can balance it out with some true restoration and leisure. So, yeah, what we have here and in the States is kind of a cult of busyness. There was actually some research out of Stanford recently where these researchers posted two mock Facebook posts, one where the person said, I'm so exhausted, I'm so tired, I've been working so hard, and one where she said, I've just been out walking my dog uh, in the woods and I feel so rested. And then they had people evaluate these two posts and read them for status. And uh, everybody thought that the person who was exhausted and overworked was higher status um, a more valued member of society probably earned more money, and the other person who was enjoying life was like a little bit, a little bit lesser. <laughs> this is—I have a feeling this would not uh, play out the same if you did it in many European countries, right? And this is a real inversion of how we used to think about leisure, right? The leisure class used to be people who had leisure, who had time off, but now we really venerate being busy and being overworked, and this has a kind of c- cultural currency that encourages. Uh, this cult of overwork.
0: Yeah, well, ask people how they've been, and what do they say? They've been busy. They're busy. Exactly. Everybody's busy.
2: And there's kind of a competitiveness to that, right? Like, if you, in an office space, people will say, oh, I stayed till 8 last night. Oh, I stayed till 9. Did you work? In the, oh, of course, I worked all weekend, right? And it becomes this kind of, we egg each other into this these, uh, you know, states of exhaustion, and it, it's a badge of honor, um, and it's not healthy. We're wearing it in our bodies, and we're wearing it in our psyches. It's, it's, uh, it's grinding us down.
0: Well, from what you're saying is, you know, the longer you work, the worse your work gets, and the more your life and relationships suffer. So what's the upside?
2: To, work, to working long hours, you mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, status, I think, is huge. Um,
0: well, it was more of a rhetorical question, because there really isn't much of an upside.
2: You know, I think that what we think of as the upside is that it looks like success, right? And it's really hard for us to, to shake that mindset. Um, you have to be a pretty strong person to say, um, I actually am going to choose uh, an existence that isn't about work and consumption. Um, or I'm going to at least choose parts. I'm going to protect parts of my week, a few hours, a weekend, whatever it takes. Um, to be something and to be somebody who isn't just a worker. I mean, that was the original idea of the Sabbath, right? It was it was like the it was the the promise to the slaves that there was one day a week where they could put down the bricks <laughs> and no longer be producing. And that's not um, something that we that a lot of people engage with anymore, right? We think we have to make we have to infuse every minute. Every man has to be utilitarian and has to be working, you know, pushing us towards success and money and acquisition.
0: Um, Well, and I remember a time not all that long ago where, you know, on Sunday, stores weren't open. They just weren't. And so now everything's 24-7. You can go to the store anytime you want, buy anything you want. And somebody has to be working at that store. And and so it's it's a cultural thing, too, that, that... it, we're just 24-7 all the time.
2: Yeah, more, more, better, faster, that's been called, right? So, yeah, if we are um, able to consume 24 hours a day, seven days a week, someone is going to be working <laughs> 24-7, right? Like, I, you know, I think about this when I click, uh, you know, the Amazon website at 2 in the morning to order my book, that that click is sending somebody up a ladder somewhere to get that book, <laughs> right? Like, we're really, we're linked in this um, idea of constant availability, constant work, constant consumption, we're all in it together.
0: So, what if somebody who has been living this life on a treadmill of working all the time and being proud of the fact that that they work eighty hours a week, but but maybe you know they realize that it's time? How do you start if 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 you're not comfortable. I can imagine people uh, when they're told, okay, now just take some time off, they wouldn't know how to do it or what to do.
2: I know, it's, it, which is a scary idea, isn't it? That, that we actually don't know how to stop, <laughs> how to switch off.
0: So how do you uh, stop?
2: I think it requires a kind of commitment to leisure, the same level of commitment that we usually apply to our work lives. I mean, we're very good. This is, this is the good news, is that this... Um, very strong North American work ethic could be applied to leisure <laughs> and to the rest of our lives, too, um, which means being really vigilant. Um, and, you know, for me, doing this project about the weekend, I really try now to, to block off a chunk of time every weekend. If I'm not going to get a full 48 hours, it's not always realistic, let's face it. Um, there are many demands, domestic and professional, that like encroach on the weekend. But if I can get a few hours that are just purposeless, where I can wander, where I can go in, in into the woods, where I can kind of get out of my head and my work self, or even just be with the people that I love in a really concentrated real way, not just watching TV together, um, I feel so rejuvenated. And so, I, you know, I'm trying to commit to that time with the same kind of commitment that I have to my professional life. So, I mean, that's the first step would probably be to just block it off, and see how it goes, you know, and baby steps. If it's an hour, then it's an hour. Turn the phone off. Put the phone away on the weekend and just really decide, like, what am I going to, what is my time going to be like? I think it's a, you know, it's sort of an existential question. (laughs) Like, what is my life? How am I going to use this very fleeting time that I have?
0: Well, if you're so busy that you don't have time to think about that, then you don't think about that.
2: Yeah, well, that's you know that's kind of the issue isn't it if work occupies all of our mental and emotional space it does prevent us from sort of digging deep (laughs) into those other questions about life and about the people around us and about our communities too you know like i really think of this as a as a social issue because if we're working all the time when do we participate uh in the world in which we live and when do we um you know, when are our powers of empathy tuned into our neighbors and into, the, into our surroundings? Uh, I think it really is a question of, of community building, too.
0: Well, I think this is a story that people have heard before, that when you work too much, when you don't take time off, when you don't take vacations, the work can suffer, your health can suffer, your mental health can suffer, and yet people still do it. So clearly something's going on here, and, and I think you've laid out exactly what? Katrina Onstad has been my guest. She is the author of the book, The Weekend Effect, and you'll find a link to that book in the show notes. If you find that your smartphone battery is dying too quickly, there is one way to extend the battery life significantly, and that is to delete the Facebook app. In tests, Android phones retain 20% more power by eliminating the Facebook app and then using the Safari browser instead. Doing the same thing on the iPhone saves 15% of the power. And yes, there are some Facebook features on the app that you can't get through the browser, so you have to decide if it's worth it, but it will save your battery power. And in addition to saving power, you'll also get a big chunk of storage back because the Facebook app uses up a lot of storage just sitting there. Snapchat is another app that sucks a lot of power, but there is no web equivalent. And that is Something You Should Know. And that's the podcast today. I'm Micah Ruthers. I appreciate you listening to Something You Should Know.